even if it's a recreational golfer, none of us have tons of free time. If somebody's choosing to spend their recreational time golfing and they've come to us for help, we should I, we should do just as good a job with them and think just as hard and long about how we're going to impact their free time as we would with a tour player's livelihood. This is The Tournament Code. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Ralph. We know a little bit about your background. You try to stay incognito, though, it sounds like, having worked with tour players and a bunch of other high-quality golfers. Before we start talking about your career there, tell us just how you got into the game of golf. Yeah, well, I grew up in a small town. Uh, we had a little nine-hole golf course, not much else. So, you know, like a lot of kids, morning till night, that that's where I was. Uh, fell in love with the game, was lucky enough to have a club pro who was interested in helping me and, you know, just fell in love with it and, and played golf all, all day, every day, basically. And then tell us, okay, you're playing golf all day, every day. How does that end up with, we'll start, we know you're working at a club right now and you decided to step back after 2020 to do more more work there and work with fewer tour players. But how did that end up with you? working with tour players, traveling 100 days out of the year. Yeah, so, you know, I got, got lucky. I got quite good at golf, uh, got a golf scholarship, got got to play at University of Texas El Paso, which was at the time a you know, powerhouse in, in, in Division One. At one point, you know, at one point we were ranked second in the country, so that was pretty, you know, that was a great experience. Turned professional. What wasn't good enough to, to play on the PJ Tour? You know, shifted gears, got in the golf industry, and I kind of thought, you know, boy, it'd be great to try to be the coach that I never had. So so when I got into coaching, my thought process was, you know, there wasn't a lot of great coaches back then. There's a lot of great coaches now. But when I got into coaching, there wasn't a lot of great coaches. I thought, you know, it'd be nice to be able to help people, you know, live their dreams and, you know, get better at golf. So I got into coaching trying to become the best coach really I could and see where that would, would, would lead to. So I've always invested in an immense amount of time and effort into getting better as a coach. And that led to, you know, success. You know, I've had a lot of success with my players. I've, I've coached, you know, full-time in the PJ Tour for, you know, 19 years. You know, my students have won 50 state championships. You know, it, it, it's been a lot of fun. To, it, it's been a lot of fun. And w- when you're traveling with players and, and helping them, they, they obviously become friends. And I feel... You know, I feel it's my responsibility to become, you know, the best coach I can to, to help my friends out. And I've always thought I've trying, I'm trying to help them get an advantage, a long-term sustainable advantage over competitors, you know, by having me as a coach. And and that's always been my, my guiding principle as a coach. Try to, you know, give, give if somebody's going to trust me with their golf game, I want to do the best job I possible. So you mentioned there you wanted to become the coach you never had. Did you have any coaching growing up? And if so, what were the shortcomings of those coaches that you had? So back in the day, I did have coaches because I, I, I wanted to get better. I knew I needed help to, to do that. I felt like the shortcomings of the coaches back then, through no fault of their own, but the model back then as a coach was, here's what I did. I'm better than you. So what you should be copying me, right? So <laughs> to give you a quick example I've always weighed about 175 pounds my whole life. I had a coach who was a pretty big person. And he said, well, you're probably going to have to gain 50 pounds to swing like me, <laughs> right? 
So, you know, I did because I wanted it. So I gained, I don't know, 50, 40. And then, you know, I got a flat tire of changing my tire and I caught a reflection of myself in, in the, with the, I had no shirt on and I caught a reflection of myself. I was like, you know, I don't know if this is worth it. I think I had to try to find a skinnier coach. So then I had to find a coach that was skinnier, that was, you know, my size. So I didn't have to, you know, eat hot dogs all night. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a different, you know, it's obviously a different era. I feel like the coaches back then did the best they could. You know, we, we're, we're, we're armed with a lot more information now. Yeah, it's a unique time as far as information goes. And especially, I think the advent of launch monitors has helped coaches know what they, A, help coaches know what they know and give students something tangible to understand what's going on at the point of impact. Tell us a little bit about what your coaching looked like, maybe early on and then now with launch monitors, how you use them and your philosophy regarding them. Well, I mean, right now, I, I feel that, I, I feel like we're lucky as coaches because we don't have to guess. I purchased one of the top, one of the first 10 foresight pods that, that came off, uh, you know, off, off the line. Super thankful I did. It was a game changer for me. You know, I'm on their international advisory board, but, you know, it's just, just so nice not to have to guess and to know with confidence exactly what's happening. I put, I'm pretty big into technology. I've got, I've got swing catalyst force plates in my house. I don't, I don't like guessing. I like measuring things. I like knowing for sure. I think, I think the, the big thing is using technology. If we can use technology to come up with a simple solution for a complex problem, then it's a, it's a perfect scenario. So I, I like measuring things. I'm not sure every player needs to know every measurement, but as a coach, if I've got a hunch about going one way or the other, but I've got data to back up one direction, I feel much more confident. And if I'm feeling more confident with with that direction, you know, the, the player will as well. So I, I love my swing catalyst. If I don't have it, you know, it, they're not portable. But if I, I'm with a player, I'm just imagining what their graphs look like. I, I love capturing club data. I, I just think it's super important. Especially when people are working on the golf course and their livelihood comes from how they play. You got to have a reason to, if you're going to make them do something, you hope, you'd hope that you had a pretty good reason for making them change what they're doing or give them something to run on. Tell us about what it's been like getting players who are playing at that high level, what it's like, you know, traveling day, traveling throughout the year and what it's like working with uh, your friends, as you called them on the, on the tour, trying to help them find the right directions. Yeah. And kind of to just to go back to what, what you just said about, you know, this is their livelihood. I, I was looking at like, Hey, if this were, you know, if this were a corporation and you, you've been averaging making, you know, $2 million a year, I'm not going to come in one day and say, Hey, we should go in a you know, completely different direction without having a very, very well thought out plan of why we're going in a different direction, how, what that's going to look like, timelines, goals, you know, I feel like if we're going in a different direction uh, for aesthetics, it's going to be a problem. If we're going in a different direction because there's a legitimate deficiency in our game that is needed in a tournament, then that that then that that change is always warranted. Where like if if we can't play a left right wind, we can't just go to the golf course hoping there's no left right wind. We you know we need to be able to address that. So coaching the PGA Tour is a lot of fun if you like a lot of hard work. So I would always, I'm a bit of a routine person. I would, Sunday night, I would typically 
go over the players' stats, you know, like like where they're trending. You know, I like to break it down twenty five yard segments, and I would a bit of a stat nerd, and I'd go over all the stats. You know, Monday would be travel day, get the golf course, start getting used to what the venue is going to give them that week, or what it's going to offer them in, ter- in terms of how they need to prepare Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, so looking at the weather, looking at the rough, looking at the green speeds, combining that with what their stats are, touch base with them, see what their schedule's like, help them prepare. I always get hyped up with the coach for Tuesday, right? Tuesday's kind of my, my, my big day to make sure I got everything everything ready. Wednesday, hopefully everything's fine and we're, we're just getting ready for, thir- you know, waiting for Thursday. Fun to watch him play golf. And, you know, it's, it can be nerve-wracking. I mean, you, you them a shot you've got Tuesday you know and then you watch them Thursday and but these guys are pretty good so that that's as you're watching them Thursday you've got an incredible amount of time on your hands to think about how you can make them better and I always think you know if it can make a plus seven eight handicap better it's gonna make everybody else better too so I feel like most of the best ideas I've had in my in my career I've been out watching golf just seeing about how I can make somebody incrementally better right so you know, and, and then they play Thursday. You know, sometimes there's some issues come up. Typically, you're obviously not starting from scratch. They, they might have hit a few poor bunker shots they need some help with, or, you know, maybe they, they had some mid-irons a little too high. You know, they need to work on a flighted shot more. So there's always some little fine-tuning going on. You know, I'm, I'm not one to stay, stay too long during the week. I feel like if they've got a good... I've always thought we should be trying to prevent fires rather than putting them out. So that that's kind of how I how I go about that. So when you're there working with players on Tuesday, how deep are you getting into mechanics of the swing or working on things technically? That's a that's a good question, and, and every coach is a little bit different. I I would say I'm I'm not very mechanical. I feel like I, I'm big into drills and, and getting people to practice properly. I feel like if there's something mechanical they we need to fix, I'd rather fix it through different types of block practice than with trying to make a technical change in your swing on a Tuesday. I feel like if you are thinking about making a technical swing change, that'd be more of an off-season decision or at a minimum if somebody's got a couple weeks off. But making a change on a Tuesday, wow, tough. I mean, if if you're trying to talk a player into moving their ball position up half inch, that's one thing. But, you know, trying to get them to, to make changes isn't, isn't really doable. You said you want to when you're if you're going to have to make that change, you'd rather do it through some sort of block practice of a drill. What and it sounds like what you're saying there too is maybe give them more of a feel to go to or something that's going or give them a cause and effect that's going to naturally make that change rather than having them looking internally. So maybe the words I'm looking for, you're giving them sort of something external to look at rather than internal. Tell me if I'm saying that correctly and be what exactly that kind of practice looks like. So if let's say you've got a player who's, you know, I had a player recently, good player, top 50 in the world, put him on swing catalyst. He was transferring too much weight, too, you know, too much pressure on, on his trail foot and his back foot in, in his back swing. So he was getting up around 90% pressure, which a little much and something he was wasn't able to quite get back to it and wasn't able to cover it. You know, that was a lot that's a lot of information there. I just said, why don't we hit some I said, boy, it'd be great if we could cover the ball better. He agreed. Everybody wants to cover the ball better. 
I said, boy, it'd be great if we could hit some shots with our stance narrower. Do just as a block practice. Let's start off the day with 30 shots with a much narrower stance, right? A much narrower stance. We're obviously not able to transfer our weight as effectively from you know back to front. It was more of a rotational swing, and then let that transfer over in, into your actual swing. So that's kind of a feel that a player could quickly adapt to without trying to do anything you know overtly technical, but. But I wouldn't suggest that drill unless I had a, a good reason for it. Not just, boy, it looks like you're swaying too much. It was more like, hey, the, the first thing, was, and it wasn't even about the pressure trace either. It was about the fact that, hey, your fairy woods are, are coming up at it one degree, and you're not hitting it well. And there's four par fives here that we have to hit three woods into. So we need to increase your, we, we need an angle attack of you know, negative one this week. For that three one, we're not to have a great week. So we have to do that. And how are we going to go about doing that? So here's a drill that we could do in our warm up that'll make that much more likely. So that's kind of the thought process behind it. And I feel like there's, I will say there's, there's too much coaching that's based on aesthetics. And they might say, hey, you're swaying. We don't want you to sway. But I don't think the player is going to buy into it unless you have the other information. You know, part of being a coach is being a salesman. And if the player's more committed, he's going to play better. I know that's true for me when people said certain aesthetic things. I'm like, well, yeah, I get what, I get what you're saying, but like, show me how it's, show me how it's going to change things for me. And I can imagine, especially when your livelihood's on the line, you're even much more skeptical. When it comes to using data like that, it's, I think it's super unique how you described it. And that I think sometimes coaches, uh, I've heard stories of coaches who, end up playing whack-a-mole on numbers, like change this number here, oh, we change this number here. And you didn't change, say, hey, let's change it for the sake of making your swing catalyst numbers look better. It was because our golf club is doing something in response to those numbers that we want to change what the golf club is doing. When you're out on the, when you're out on the road and you don't have swing catalyst with you, what sort of things are you looking at to see what's going on with the player at impact and trying to reverse engineer some of those things if they need anything at all. Well, we all have tendencies. I feel like the, the important thing is to recognize our tendencies and to constantly be on the lookout for them and have drills to keep them at bay. I feel like if we could all recognize the three, four tendencies we have and then build in three, four stop drills, keep them at bay. I don't think those tendencies are ever going to go away, but we can keep them at bay long enough to play great golf week after week until we quit doing those drills. And then, you know, you need to have your coach remind you that, hey, we better go back to our stock drills because our tendencies are creeping back up. So I just feel like it's important to recognize people's tendencies. If it's something outside their tendencies, I had a player today, top 50 player in the world. He's like, send me some video. It's like, Ralph, here's what I think. I'm like, you know what? I agree. I, I agree, but I'm going to think about this for a day, right? And, and I'm going to get back to you tomorrow. It's an off week for him. You know, we, we have to take this seriously. It's our livelihood. But but even even then, you know, I've always I always thought, even if it's a recreational golfer, you know, none of us have tons of free time. If somebody's choosing to spend their recreational time golfing and they've come to us for help, we should I, we should do just as good a job with them and think just as hard and long about how we're going to impact their their free time as we would with a tour player's livelihood. You know, you do or you've come out with this app called the Tour Read. 
It's been out for a few years now, I think. And I got it about a month ago. And I think it's pretty cool what you've done with it. I formerly used another service, Aimpoint, and was familiar with that system. And I like kind of what, how I like the, some of the changes that you've, not changes you made, but the system that you've designed. Tell us a little bit about Tourread, its genesis, and what players, how players should be thinking about using it. Yeah. So this is basically been my life's work. Uh, how good put, put, put into this. So what it is, it's a, a green reading training system. So it starts with the app. You know, it, it, it's not in, but basically what you do is you, you, you can put the phone on the ground. There's an internal 360 level that called a clinometer in your phone. During COVID, me and my partner came up with this idea to, hey, let, let's, let's use a clinometer in your phone, do the physics behind it. So we can put the phone down very, very quickly. It'll tell us where to, where to aim our putt. And then it's got a training system built into it. It's got a pretty, pretty extensive video library in there teaching us how to read pots, stuff, practice plans. It's really, it's been incredible. We've had the men's and women in the late teams both bought it for their, for their teams. It was fun to see Nick Taylor win the Kane Open. He used it every day. So we kind of designed it for the average player, but I, all my friends on tour, I'm like, hey guys, you guys aren't very good at reading greens either, so why don't you start using it? So got a lot of tour players using it. It's been a lot of fun. Different federations around the world are using Basically, it's a way, as a golf coach, the hardest thing about about coaching I always found was at the end of a putting lesson, someone say, what about green reading? And you'd be like, well, kind of a 20-year trial and error process, so, you know, kind of good luck with that. Whereas now, we're trying to, you know, steepen the learning curve like everything else, and we're trying to get players much better, much quicker, and I've got a 73-putt practice plan in the app that legitimately every person that goes through that practice plan gets much better at reading green and i feel like it's a it's quite an easy so basically the lowest hanging fruit to to improve your scores like if you said hey i want to add 10 yards okay well you have to wake up earlier in the morning you have to go to the gym you have to start doing yoga you know no more no more ice cream at night you know you have to you know make all these lifestyle changes where where green you're eating you know something that very quickly we can get much better at i feel like another important part I feel like, first of all, most most putting instruction is geared towards starline control. Most good player starline control is quite good. So the the big issue is, is green reading. The average PGA Tour player can can start their putt within one degree of their start line, ninety five percent of the time, controlled. The average make percentage. So if if you're off by one percent, you should make a ten footer. The average the make percentage from ten feet is forty one percent. So where is that extra 44% going? It's from their speed from 10 feet is quite good too. So it's going to be green reading. So if we can try to improve your start line by 1% and go from 96% of the time you're going to do that to 90, 95% rather than 96, it's not going to help us that much. But if we can improve our green reading, we can make a lot more progress. I've had college players who've, I've had a number of college players who've knocked four shots off their off their game. It's it's a little hard to do with a, with a tour player because they're already quite good. You know, in terms of teaching people how to read green, it's a game changer. When I would, what throughout my career, whenever I got a new player on the PJ Tour, I'm not sure if you all have seen Data Golf. Have you seen Data Golf? That anyway. So I would um, take the tour. Yes. Okay. Sorry. So I, I was like, wow. So I would, I would take the 
the average, you know, hundred gram moving average of where we started and compare that to the time frame that I worked with a player in. And the average player that I've worked with on the PJ tour has improved 0.6 shots a day with their putting, which which is a lot, right? And I feel like a big part of that was I would help them with their green reading so that they weren't automatically thinking if they missed it low, they pulled it. And they weren't trying to go down a rabbit hole of changing their, their stroke. You know, if you're a right-handed player and you've got a right-to-left putt and you miss it low, every one of us is going to think we pulled it. The reality is, for the most part, when you look up, if it's going low, it's because it's breaking more than you thought it was going to. You, you almost, if you could default to say, well, that wasn't a pull, that was a misread, or we've got a system on how to learn from that, we're better for the next hole, then we're constantly getting better instead of really flatlining or getting worse as we're constantly blaming our stroke for something that's not stroke related. First thing you need to do is identify the problem, right? So if we misidentify a problem, in anything in life, we're not going to be able to fix it. If I'm someone listening right now, I might be saying, that's great, but like, how can you, how can someone learn how to put, how to read a green better from an app? How does that knowledge transfer over to players so to where they can go through these 73 putts? And then all of a sudden, the next time they see a putt, they're like, oh, hey, like, I have a better idea of how that broke than prior to now. Also, I also wanted to add, how is it similar to Aimpoint and how is it different to Aimpoint? What, what we have, the, 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 the green reading system starts with giving you normalized data. So you can put it on the ground and it'll tell you what, where, to, where to aim, right? Then, then we've got a training, you know, but I'm a golf coach, right? So I like, I like people to have drills and, and, and people to train so that, because really all I care about is how people play, play on the golf course. Right, so so the app is going to give you information how much putt breaks. You use it in training. Then we've got ways to wean yourself off the app, right? So so the first time you use it, it'll give you the information. The next time you use it, it will take away. It, it'll still tell you the the slope of the ground, but it won't tell you where to where to where to aim it. You have to estimate, and, and then it'll give you the answer after that. And then we've got an on course system that's ridiculously easy to learn and super accurate i've had it's just super easy to learn and it's it's really not like anything else because it gives you an exact an exact measurement how much a putt's going to break so there is still some still a learning curve where where you'd have to still be able to recognize slope so you still need to know hey this is a one percent two percent three percent four percent slope but you know, everybody's got their phone with them when, when we're golfing or when we're practicing. And it's pretty it's pretty easy to do it. And again, with 73 putts, it's super easy to do. So it's not like anything else because it gives you an exact measurement of, of where where putt's going to, where, where, where you need to hit a putt as opposed to, you know, an estimate. I don't think our brains work well with hit it over there somewhere. I think our brains work better if we're trying to you know, took a smaller target and, and hit it there. So the app's got, it, it, it's not like you can just lay it on the ground and become a great green reader. It's more like, I think you have to go through these 73 pots. And also we've got a, a really nice video library in there that's going to guide you through the on-course system and how to match up your line and your speed 
and how to become a great green reader in, in very, very short period of time. Yeah, I've been very impressed with it so far. Full disclosure, I haven't even gone through the videos, the 73 putts, nothing. I had just seen it online maybe a month ago or something like that. I was like, all right, I'm going to try this. Th- I'm going to try this out. And went through and tried out the app on my practice, on the practice screen in my course. Like, okay, this is really impressive. And then uh, recently been practicing a lot more with it and seeing a lot of success and having that having that exact number, I was formerly did aim point and sworn by it. Having that exact number for, at least for me has been beneficial because it's no longer like, okay, it's right about at that dot there. I'm like, okay, like all things being equal on a perfect putting surface. It's like all, all that all else being equal, essentially like that, this would be where I need to aim it in order to make it. And it gives me a, a lot more confidence. B, it lets me then take that and be like, okay, like what, what other things am I missing here? And also being able to move, make that read in a fast manner. I really enjoy what you've built. When it comes to putting practice, you know, we can use the tour read app to practice getting better at rereading. You mentioned that tour players especially don't have much of an issue with getting things off on the right start line. What sort of technical drills, if any, do you have players working on outside of green reading in order to become better putters and how much time do you recommend a player a lot towards that? So I, I think our setup is important. I feel a lot of people, I, I see a lot of you know, I always start, you know, at, at the beginning. So let's start with it with people's setup. I think it's important to get your, your kneecaps, you know, o- over the balls of your feet, roughly like, like we need uh, a good base of support. We need pretty good posture. I see a lot of people with, with shoulders, you know, if we've got rounded shoulders, we're going to be more likely to be more handsy. I feel strongly that the best players in the world use their shoulders, uh, like their torso rotation, as the engine of their stroke. So, like, whenever I'm talking to a great putter, they're like, well, obviously I'm controlling with my with my shoulders, and obviously I'm doing this with my torso. And, you know, so that's that's what the best putters in the world are focusing on, is controlling the, the, the blade with, with their shoulders. And I feel like there's a lot of instruction based on, you know, controlling with your hands, you know, and trying to manipulate a certain path based on, you know, just trying to manipulate a certain path as opposed to getting your shoulders to set up square and be mirror images, mirror images of each other back and through. You know, and if your if your shoulders are mirror images of each other back and through, then guess what? The blade's going to return to square, and we're not going to have to manipulate it to do it. It'll just you know, so rather if somebody's let's say a little too handsy, rather than me saying, "Hey, let's take some hands out," I'd rather say, "Hey, uh, let's use our shoulders correctly, so that you're not being rewarded for using your hands anymore." Right? So, kind of a way of, and so I feel like if we're using our shoulders properly, that that's going to be a important. I feel like alignment super important. I've read some studies saying alignment's not important, but you know, some of those studies aren't are done on you know, not great golfers and with poor start control anyway. So, um, you know, I, I think start starting your, your, your setup is important, alignment is important. And then, you know, having your, that proper posture is going to allow our shoulders to work properly. And, uh, we're, you know, I feel like good putt for good putt. For the best players in the world, once they get on site at a tournament, how are they preparing themselves for the greens, both on the putting green, warming up for their rounds, and on the course during practice rounds? Well, I feel like the, the, the most important thing going to new venue is learning to be the green. Well, so, you know, 
I've had players, and Andrew Putnam's a good, a good example. He's a, he's a great putter. that would be able to help him out a little bit. But he said, Ralph, I like using Touring because now I'll put that down, and I feel like in 15 minutes, I've got my speed down for the week, and I'm climatized myself to that to that course much much quicker than you know used to be a lot more work and take a you know a couple days to acclimatize yourself now he could do it very quickly one of my students mac hughes a very good putter was at an event right when you right when the app first came out said okay thursday it, it rained all thursday night greens were much much slower he was really struggling in warm-up to you know see the less break with the slower greens and you know, put the app down a few times, got his eyes readjusted, went out and had a, you know, pretty good, pretty good event. I, I was pretty happy about that. And, you know, I, I think from a greens point of view, we need to get the speed of the greens down so that we can match up our line, our speed. I, I know I always get my players to start off on a two, like, let's say it's a tour event, got a couple days there. We'll start off on Tuesdays with bigger breaking cuts. They need like 3% slopes, 3.5% slopes. So that distance, uh, our speed control is critical, less margin for error, right? And we really have to get that that speed perfect. And then on a Wednesday, we want to get our confidence up. And also we want to see ends that we're more likely to see. So we'll switch over to one and a half, uh, you know, between one and 2% slope. Well, that's to practice with where speed's not as critical. But we've already, you know, kind of dialed in our speed with, with those, those bigger breaking pots. But I feel like that's kind of a neat way for really anybody to get better, to, to quickly acclimatize yourself. And that's for tour players. And, you know, we're not all tour players, but if we could go to the green and, you know, even if we're if we're playing a junior event and we haven't even played a practice round, but if we can go to the green and hit some big breaking pots to start with, get the speed down there, and then switch over to some flatter, your less breaking pots, just so we can get more comfortable when seeing the golf course. That'd be kind of the, the quickest way to acclimatize ourselves to new green. So when you're getting those players starting out on the three, three and a half to five um, degree slopes, like, are you no, putting down a chalk line? Two and a half, like, yeah, five would be crazy. Um, like okay, two and a half to three would be great, right? And yet, okay, I like chalk. I've gone back and forth over my career about hey, are chalk lines better or strings better. Chalk lines, I feel like are a little bit better. The, the the benefits string have though, I feel like chalk lines are better for tour players because they're allowed to put chalk on on the greens without anybody you know questioning them. I feel like for most amateurs, strings are better because they're easier to put down, and you know if you make a mistake, you can just move the string quickly. What and the string gives you the added benefit of giving you some awareness of where your eyes are relative to the target line. So yeah, I I feel like that's a good question or. Like find a sloping green and you know put a string down or you know, use, use the you know two sticks and a string. You use that for a sloping one to gonna help you that way too. You're not manipulating it. You're not you know aiming at right edge and pushing it out five inches and thinking you know you made a good putt. So that's a yeah great way to do it for players who are playing out on the tour. You know you get them set up in this way. You get them going on in the week and then sometimes speeds on the tour can change as you mentioned rain can affect things wetness can affect things and maybe even you know like sometimes at least it's probably not this way on the 
on the tour, but every now and then there will be a difference between a like practice screen and what a course looks like. How easy is it for players to make that adjustment as far as getting the speed changes? And is there anything that you try to do to help players make that adjustment quicker? Yeah, that's a, that's a good that's a good one. And and you know you'd be surprised how many venues will have a problem where the where the practice screen is different than the actual course. You know, I, I see it actually oddly enough quite a bit of majors. Like Oak Hill this year, you know, had four practice greens. Only one of them was the same speed as as a golf course. The other ones were for the other golf course or were practice ones. So, you know, it's a lot of people on a very small area. I'll I'll give you a concrete example. The memorial's got quite quick greens, very fast, very sloping greens, beautiful golf course, always in immaculate shape. It, it's amazing. Uh, quite fast greens. We we know the greens are going to get faster during the week. You can look at the weather, and you know the greens are they're going to try to get the green faster. And then if the weather is going to allow that, then the greens are going to get faster, especially a place like that has sub air, for instance. But so if we know they're going to get faster early in the week, I'll try to pick more like bigger breaking putts and more downhill putts for players to hit, so that we can get used to that right away. So we don't have to wait for Sunday before we're faced with big breaking fast putts. So I feel like it's important to see the weather, see what, you know, know that traditionally that all locations they're going to use. I would say on average, the Memorial would pick all locations that are one, 1% slopier than a normal, normal event. You know, so we have to prepare for that in our preparation for sure. Memorial is a good example of one that's got perfect putting green to allow us to do that. You talked about earlier how you look at your player stats on Sunday night. So I'd kind of like you to talk a little bit more about how you uh, evaluate their putting and short game stats in particular. First thing, short game stats are a little harder to look at because not every chip shot's created equal, right? So I, I don't get as detailed w- with that, although I I certainly look at every every category and I feel like you can make some, some suggestions based on that if a player's up and down percentage is much worse out of the rough on average, like when you compare him to the rest of the field, then he is out of the fairway. Might be an area to make sure we're hitting enough enough shots out of out of out of the rough. Uh, putting wise, I've gone. It, it's it's. I'm glad you asked that question. I, I've had had a player one time, and his previous coach said, "Geez, I went over every you know your your make percentages from every foot, and you're terrible from seven feet. So let's hit a whole bunch of seven footers because you're great from six feet, you're great from eight feet. But oh my gosh." Seven feet, you're terrible. Let's really focus on our seven footer. Well, every time the guy got a seven footer, I was in a pass. If I could give a couple things that I like, I I see people in in warm ups who are maybe stressed out about their make percentage in a warm up. I think if we leave the green, knowing what the speed of the green is, and having a crystal clear idea in our mind of how we want the ball to hold that day, then I think we've done our job in the warm up. Right? So we definitely want to hit some putts in our warm up that entered the hole perfectly. We've got a crystal clear idea of that and we can take that with us out in the golf course, you know, and every time we were, we we're going to hit a putt that day, that's how we're going to see the ball entering the hole. So, you know, stats are important. And then knowing how to slightly adjust the player's preparation, you know, as, as a, as a guiding principle, I, I feel like it's important. Gotcha. So would you tell your players to envision the ball entering the hole differently based on conditions? 
That's a good question. I, I feel like I feel like in general, twelve inch capture speed is 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 going to be optimal. But you know that's going to look different on a thirteen stimp than it would look on a nine stimp, right? So I feel like it's important to you know see the ball entering the hole the way it is that week. I feel like this is a small thing, but I feel like it's important, or I've always thought it was important. I never want to think about a player hitting it twelve inches past the hole. Because it gets, you know, puts, puts a, obviously puts a miss in your mind. I always want them to think about how we want the ball to be entering the hole. The 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 players, the putters I've worked with who've invested the obvious in making visualization a bigger part of the routine have putted the best over the longest period of time. Okay, cool. So I got one, just one more question. And I know this is with uh, USJ rules and stuff, this has changed over the years. But what's your overall opinion on green reading books? I don't think green reading books help much. The, I mean, if you look at when they outlawed green reading books on the PGA Tour, people didn't put any better or any worse. It's a pretty good, so rather than looking at my opinion, I would look at, you know, the strokes gained average, the year they, a year for the, that they had green books, and then the year that they don't have green books, and there's no distant difference statistically. And I mean, boy, that's a pretty big sample size. I would say they're, they're not helpful. I can see how to be somewhat helpful on the PJ Tour, you would think, because you, you have, if you have a pin sheet, you can you know mark on them. I see amateurs though, kind of they're getting the they're getting to the green, they're trying to estimate where the their ball is, and they're trying to estimate where their you know where the hole is. And I'm biased. We've got a system super that's super convenient, super easy to to do. That everybody that's done it's told me they've gotten better. Green books. What I like about our system is we're looking at the green and we're evaluating the green problem with the book is you don't have that many that much time and every second that you're looking at a book you're not looking at the actual hole you know to an analogy i like to do i mean if i'm driving somewhere i mean i don't want to really look at the map i want to look at the road right so i feel like it's important to spend our time you know reading the green obviously i think my system is the best and it's i've it's been proven on the lpj the pj called collegiately you know with with which players, you know, I think that's the best system. And I don't think green books are super helpful. Although, other than to maybe give you an idea of slow, like, I'm not saying they're, they're irrelevant. I, I think as anything we can learn is going to be helpful. But to, to rely on a green book for a read is going to be a challenge. Yeah. And when you're on a green, as you mentioned, it's about the amount you only have, you have a limited amount of time, just like driving a car. Uh, you want to keep your eyes on the road and, Okay, maybe you can pull out the atlas. Most people don't remember what an atlas was, but maybe you can pull out an atlas if you got someone in the back seat or the passenger side. But if you're driving, you got to do the best. And I think feeling feeling the percentage with your feet, at least to me, I've tested side by side with green reading books, and I think they have their place, especially for like other parts of the game. Like if when we have a green reading book for or we have a yardage book for a course we're playing and we're getting the major slopes, but we don't necessarily need the breakdown on the individual percentages. I feel like the the feet and adjusting yourself can help do a lot for you and give you some very specific feedback. Yeah, absolutely. As as, can I just add um, one more thing to that? I think too, you know, we, we always, yeah, yeah. you know, a lot of times I, a big problem I see with green reading is I see people going to different sides of the hole and getting confused. I feel like we should always trust our uphill look, right? So, Ted Scott taught, taught, told me this uh, line a few weeks ago, but you know, if, if you want to see how how high a mountain is, you look from the bottom, right? So 
always like feel with your feet, but then look uphill. I feel like people, well, I shouldn't say feel. When I've tested players, they've tended to underestimate. If they're looking downhill, they will underestimate the slope by about 25%, right? So always look uphill and and trust that and don't even bother looking downhill because it's just going to give you the wrong answer. That's brilliant. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. The last question we ask every guest is the same. And for you, it's going to be a two-parter here. So one, if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? And then two, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? I, I was lucky I learned this fairly early on, I guess. But I would, if I, was, if I could tell a junior golfer one thing, it, it would be to enjoy the journey, right? There's, there's a lot of pressure in life. You know, if, if we can enjoy it, there, there's two things about that. A, we're more likely to succeed if, at anything if we're enjoying the journey. And B, we'll just have a better life if, if, if we're enjoying ourselves. So I wish kids could, young players could enjoy themselves more in, in the journey and, you know, be more positive about their golf games. And, you know, for, for myself, I was kind of lucky that I kept putting off being happy until some, some golf event would, would happen. But I thought, you know, I'll be happy when I'm fully exempt for all the events in Canada. I'll be happy when I get a scholarship, happy when I do this. And finally, I was like, I actually know happy when any of those things happened. I think it's just up to us to just be happy, you know, whenever <laughs> And just decide to be happy and, and, and enjoy ourselves. So, yeah, that's I feel like that. I just wish more kids would, would enjoy themselves more. Well, we appreciate it. Where can people find you on social media if they want to reach out to you, follow up with you, find you, uh, twerk with you, or uh, find the Tour Read app? So, th- thanks for that. The, the Tour Read app, first of all, is in the App Store, right? It's a, it's in the App Store. Uh, it's basically a turnkey system on how to learn how to read green, right? So, super excited about that. And you're, by the way, Daniel, you're gonna have to watch those videos. Is that okay? I will. I'll make. I promise. <laughs> I'll make it happen. Okay, sounds good. In the, in the next week, I'll okay, make it happen. Good. And then, so that's. And, and then I'm on Instagram, Ralph Bauer, and I'm on uh, in, on Twitter with Canadian Golf Coach. But uh, listen, I really appreciate this. And uh, you know, anything you do in the future, feel free to let me know. Be sure to give Ralph a follow, and then check out the Tour Read system. I found it very helpful. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. It helps us get our message out to more people. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at The Tournament Code and on Twitter at Tournament Code. As always, we appreciate you joining us and look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 